0: Hey y'all, it is an absolutely beautiful day out here. And today on AM2DM, we're gonna be talking about Shane Gillis, Kavanaugh, and then I'm interviewing Brian Grazer, a famous Hollywood producer. And Zach is sitting down with Sashir Zameda. We'll see you on the timeline.
1: morning Twitter, I'm Zach Safford, she's Alex Berg, and you are watching AM to dm Hi, hi, hi. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Well, we have okay. so much to do, so let's just jump let's just, it. Let's just get right into this. Well, ABC had
0: quite the night last night. Here's a tweet from Saba Hamedi. America 2019, Sean Spicer dancing to Spice Girls in neon green attire. <laughs> and really, all that I can say about this is that uh, he may be wearing some neon green ruffles. Uh. He may have had a good song selection. But he is very much still Sean Spicer.
1: The green looks terrible on him. I don't care if it's a ruffle. And I love <laughs> a ruffle. And I have been giggling about this since last night because Alex Berg is a huge Spice Girls fan. Oh. I'm so sad to see that Spice Girls, are they canceled?
0: This was, pa- this was painful. No. Do they are, are they <laughs> canceled? Not yes, the Spice or no. Girls. I cannot let you I cannot let you do that. Spice
1: Girls is like, we did not consent to this. He we will not
0: we. taint the Spice Girls for me. This uh. is just Something I want to leave in the past.
1: Okay, we can leave know? that in the past. Yeah, and I want to please. look to a future, a, the future of a young person who I'm in love with today. <gasps> here's a tweet from MJ Finesse Lover. Beyoncé and Blue Ivy did that. Hashtag making the gift. And look at this!
0: And there, there they are. And here's a tweet from Beyoncé Legion quoting Beyoncé. When I see parents singing Brown Skin Girl to their daughters, making them proud of themselves just like I do with my daughter, that's what I make music for. Uh,
1: so, so last night, ABC had a high and a low. The low being Sean Spicer dancing with Spice mm-hmm. Girls and the high being Beyonce's new documentary, which we both have not seen yet because we are working girls. And that is right. Although
0: I have to say that uh, for me, this was like great counter-programming. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have to, if if one must cope with Sean Spicer on Dancing with the Stars, then this is a great yes. counterpoint to that that like yes. deemed because ABC. Because ABC is not canceled so. right
1: now because they did this. <laughs> i like, yeah. like, oh, wonderful job, girl, wonderful job. I mean, the biggest thing is I saw people really, really, really marveling Uh about Blue Ivy on the timeline this morning. Yes, they were obsessed. And because you get to see Blue Ivy and her mom, Beyonce, in such intimate moments from all the clips I'm seeing, you just see them like working together, singing together, Blue Ivy doing the choreography um, on the sets of the music videos revolving around the soundtrack. And I just love seeing that Beyonce puts her family so central to her work. And you do get to see the twins, for the not the first time, but you're seeing them actually Mm -hmm. in motion and them riding in a car in car seats. It's really, really adorable. But something that I'm most excited about today is that in the beginning of that clip, I don't know if you noticed, Beyonce's using a Snapchat filter. I did notice that. Which means Mm -hmm. Beyonce has a Snapchat and no one's told us that she's had a Snapchat. So that means Beyonce or Blue Ivy have secret Snapchat accounts.
0: Can you even imagine being able to see what Beyonce is doing on Snapchat? I
1: would die yeah. so much. I hope she's not a girl that just like creates a video and downloads it and doesn't share it on social because we need right. this. I need this. I want to see it.
0: Who gets to be in that inner Beyonce circle of so, watching her on Snapchat? That's what I, I want to know. Kelly How Raleigh. could you try? You would have to get people to like sign an NDA, <laughs> an NDA. that they're not going <laughs> to <laughs> download. I don't know. Like, they're she probably has like a special Snapchat that yeah, flags sure. when
1: you screenshot. She's special oh, wait, Snapchat. Oh they do tell you that. Yes, yes. Never but she's like special, special Snapchat technology. Yeah, I bet Serena Williams, Kelly Rowland are all in this. Mm-hmm. Michelle Williams, I don't know, mm-hmm. maybe not. But anyway, well, I don't know. Help us with our pursuits <laughs> of understanding the Snapchat and Beyonce, and we're going to take this to the timeline now. What would you do if you found Beyonce's Snapchat? Let us know using the hashtag am to dm
0: Well, here's a tweet from CNN. Saturday Night Live has fired one of its most recent hires, Shane Gillis, just days after videos of the comedian making bigoted comments came to light.
1: Mm, and here's a tweet from Shane Gillis himself after the firing. It's, it feels ridiculous for comedians to be making serious public statements, but here we are. I'm a comedian who was funny enough to get SNL. That can't be taken away, of course. But of course, I wanted an opportunity to prove myself at SNL. But I understand it would be too much of a distraction. I respect the decision they made. I'm honestly grateful for the opportunity. I was always a mad TV guy anyway.
0: Joining us to discuss is HuffPost reporter Marina Fang. Good morning. Morning. So what do we know about the rationale behind SNL firing Gillis?
2: So they issued a statement yesterday saying, look, we're sorry we didn't see these videos before um, and basically blamed the whole vetting process for the show, which I think raises a lot of questions about the vetting process itself, given that these videos weren't from that long ago And, you know, there was a lot of um, reporting, particularly from Vulture, about the fact that he, uh, when he was a comedian in Philadelphia, there were people who worked with him who knew about him being racist and sexist and homophobic on stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was like, it's news to me that there was a vetting process. Yeah, you would assume there's not. There's still a lot that we don't really know about that process.
1: Mm. Well, you know, as this news broke, Argillis stood in his truth, I'd like to say, and he issued a non-apology to everyone. How did that move impact his firing yesterday?
2: I, th- I think it's, there's no question that that was a really, it, it made things worse. So just to kind of recap this non-apology, he basically, it was basically a version of, I'm sorry if you were offended. <laughs> so really did not help the situation because I think that had he issued a sincere apology saying something like, look, I'm sorry for, you know, saying these comments um, and then explicitly demonstrating that he understood that they were racist and homophobic and sexist. I think there's a really big chance that SNL would have said, it's okay. You can, you know, we can move on from this. You can stay on the show.
0: Mm. Now, we kind of noted uh, that it seems like there was a very thin vetting process. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we know about how he got hired in the first place?
2: Well, I mean, we we really don't know. I think that, I mean, in the past with SNL, of course, we, you know, we're getting to the start of the new season. Generally speaking, they try to, that's when they announce their new hires uh, from for the last couple of years, they have been really trying, I think, to diversify their ranks. So this hire definitely did not help that. And I think one of the most galling things about the fact that he was announced the same day that um, Bone Yang, who is currently a writer and is now an incoming new cast member, the whole thing was really galling because Bone Yang is one of the Very, very few Asian performers they've had on the show when the very few openly gay performers they've had on the show. So all of that, just the, the whole optics of this situation just was made worse by that.
1: Mm. So, you know, what's been really interesting is that Gillis is really keeps pushing back. You know, even his last statement, he's saying, you know, I was a mad TV guy anyways. I've seen a ton of conversations lately on cancel culture uh, and comedians being really pissed off about it. But do you think people are kind of intentionally getting canceled to hi- to kind of heighten their profile? Because now everyone knows his name. And before I had no idea who he was.
2: I don't know if it's intentional, but you do point out a, a good um I guess, byproduct of the situation, which is, yeah, like he wasn't very well known before this and now he is. And he, I'm sure people who feel that he shouldn't have been fired, people who were saying that this is some kind of, you know, a situation of quote, cancel culture run amok, which I, I think it isn't. I think people who will defend him might think, okay, like, you know, he's been wronged and we, we need to like rally around him. So yeah, maybe there is, um, the kind of indirect effect, which is that he, his profile does rise because of this.
0: It seems like, uh, perhaps one of the indirect effects is that now Andrew Yang has agreed to meet with Gillis. How did this come about?
2: So this came about, um, over the weekend when this, um, well, Really, this started on Thursday, but it kind of bubbled, start continued to bubble up over the weekend. Andrew Yang made some comments uh, on Twitter saying that he he he's, you know, he understands he's Asian himself, so he understands that these comments are offensive, but he doesn't think that, or he at the time he didn't think that Shane Gillis should lose his job. And then he also brought into the conversation, he said that he feels like anti-race, anti-racism against Asians isn't taken as seriously, and then tried to kind of bring um, the black community into it by saying that if uh, Shane Gillis had said the N word, NBC would have taken action much more quickly, which that, that I think was the big remark that sort of sent this whole thing into overdrive.
1: Oh, yeah. And in and deservingly so in many ways, you know, that's quite something to say. Well, mm-hmm. Marina, yeah. thank you so much for joining us today and giving us insights into this, uh, this situation, I guess. Mm-hmm.
2: Of course. Happy to be here.
1: All right. Well, here's a tweet from Brittany Shepard. Scoop. I got my hands on new pro Kavanaugh talking points circulated to White House, GOP congressional offices, and other key groups authored by the Article Three project, which push in part to undermine the credibility of his accusers.
0: We're talking about Kavanaugh again in the wake of a New York Times story that detailed allegations from Deborah Ramirez as well as the FBI's failure to investigate. Brittany is a national politics reporter for Yahoo and joins us now to talk about her scoop. Good morning.
3: Good morning. And can I just say, I'm very upset that I'm not on Beyonce's Snapchat. That was news to okay. me at the top of your show. And I, I know we're going to have to Kavanaugh, but I was like very taken aback here in my kitchen. Okay. So. Yes, girl. All- I mean?
1: Welcome to uh, the we, high. We completely
0: support that. <laughs> same, same. Um, but on the Kavanaugh news um, that you broke, what are these pro-Kavanaugh talking points and where did they come from? Well, let's start
3: from Let's start where they came from. So they came from the Article 3 project, which basically manned by Mike Davis. Mike Davis is kind of a name that many people don't know. One of those D.C. players that hide beneath the wings. Mike Davis has been instrumental in getting Kavanaugh confirmed. He was the chief just, um, chief attorney in Chuck Grassley's office, He's essentially acted as a liaison between the White House and Congress and Kavanaugh's personal staff to push Kavanaugh through during the original Christine Blasey Ford allegations, and we all lived through that media blitz, and he was really the one in the wings kind of pushing the conservative talking points. So now he is back, Um, Kavanaugh's back in the news, and when Kavanaugh's around, Mike Davis is around. So these talking points are things we've heard before. It's mostly discrediting both the reporters who broke the story, the New York Times, and like kind of perpetuating the fake news narrative that Turns out of the White House on what it seems to be a daily basis, um, as well as discredit women who are you know, alleging sexual harassment or witnesses who said that they can corroborate the story.
1: Mm. And what is the strategy behind the rollout of these talking points? It seems like they're targeting specific people for specific reasons.
3: Well, the strategy that I want to stress is coming from Article 3 and not the White House and maybe more traditional White House's, um, the White House messaging team, the press shop, maybe say, all right, guys, this is how we want to control the narrative and then contact outside groups and begin the ball rolling from there. But in this case, Mike Davis and his group are contacting essentially every conservative group in Washington. So if you are even thinking that you're a member of the GOP, you probably have received this document. And their idea is, okay, if we throw paint at some part of the wall, eventually with some people, it's going to stick. Um, and we're seeing a little bit of regurgitation of these talking points on television. But we then we kind of enter this chicken and the egg problem. So like what came first, Did anti-New um, anti York Times, um, anti-allegation sentiments come first and inspire these talking points. Where do the talking points inspire what's
0: happening on television? And that kind of directional information is unclear right now. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like there are some other media outlets that are also parroting some of these talking points. What What are kind of the implications of all of this?
3: Right. Just just like you said, like we're seeing in the Washington Examiner, which is a conservative newspaper here in D.C. that essentially like kind of pro Chuck Grassley, pro Kavanaugh talking points. I think the implication is, is that folks who are low and mid information news consumers, basically most of the U.S. population who are focused on having a job and raising their family and yada, yada, yada they see these news cycles as true 100%. So they're not engaging it critically. And so when they read news, even if it's opinion news, influenced by talking points, they might not be questioning or they basically digesting information with 100%
1: clarity. Mm -hmm. And how have they been using this strategy to help Trump confirm other judicial nominees that aren't on the Supreme Court per se?
3: Well, basically, the Article Three project has been essentially an unofficial attack dog for the White House and for GOP congressional offices by doing rapid response on Twitter. Many of these conversations about um, shortlists for the Fourth Circuit and certain like lower circuit courts in D.C. and across the country are done online, which is a bit crazy if you think about this outside of a vacuum. But that being said, they are essentially going into the mentions of people who bring up you know, certain Supreme Court or judicial nominees and saying, you're wrong, kind of perpetuating liberal talking points and um, inundating the conversation with pro-Trump um, sentiments. And then that, just, just just sheer volume, can shift the narrative from one place to another.
0: Mm. Since your story came out, what has the reaction been like? Um,
3: well, I definitely turned off all of my notifications on Twitter. It's really interesting because I think that there are conservatives who see even having talking points as giving space to the New York Times and giving credence to what they're saying, which doesn't always make sense to me, but there are perhaps uh, more fringe parts of the party who see this is like kind of not enough, right? We should be, like we being the conservatives should go after the New York Times with legal punity. We should be suing the reporters, we should be suing the paper. And then flip side on, on the left, you are. I'm getting a lot of incoming from people who are saying, you know, like, this is the White House controlling the narrative, this is Donald Trump's, you know, own making. And that ne- necessarily isn't the case either. So there's like lots of muddled lot disinformation.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Brittany, thank you so much for joining us. And next time we talk about Beyonce Snapchat, <laughs> we know we will invite you on the show.
1: We'll tag you. All right, perfect, <laughs> thank you guys. Thank you, all right. Well, coming up, I sit down with comedians that shares but up next, it's fire tweets.
0: Welcome back. It's time for Fire Tweets. But before we get into it, I just got to say, love a guest who has
1: so much range. And taste. And taste. Yeah, her yeah. kitchen was stunning. Stunning.
0: Yeah, really. It, I, it really was. I
1: really want to have cocktails with her now, but we have to move on. I, we, <laughs> we, have, we have to move on. Yeah, We're we like to standing on. too hard for our guests. It's true. The first time guest. It is so true. <laughs> all right, let's get into these tweets.
0: Okay. James, you tweeted Hey, girls, everything all right? You haven't posted a boomerang at
1: brunch. Are you still going to brunch, girl? What's I happening? know, but
0: like, what's going on?
1: I, I was thinking the other day, I saw a really long boomerang that was more than like five seconds, and I was uh. like, what are y'all doing? That, that's too much. That was too much. That was I'm the like, opposite of this problem. Yes, yes, for sure. I Actually, everyone, we're going to move on to that. I <laughs> have many <laughs> thoughts on boomerangs that. and brunch sure. and what you're doing. All right, Ilana, you treat it. If you were JLo lo in Hustlers and had to choose your dance number, what song would you pick? Whoa, that's, that's a great question. That's a question. It's a great question. Wait, 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 so... Let's actually take this timeline because I want to know how much what you all would pick. But what would you pick first?
0: Okay, so uh, I think that I would have to go with like some old TLC, maybe like the song "Creep." I don't know if that's like too on the nose for something Creep. like this, but it's got like a good, really just because it has like a good beat. It's like a little bit of a throwback. Uh-huh.
1: Oh my yeah. God, that's kind of, t- that's tasteful. What about you? Mine was My Neck, My Back by Kia. <laughs> that, uh,
0: you know, I thought mine
1: was a little on the nose. That one like, might be, ay, ay, you know. Ay, ay. Is that <laughs> <clears throat> it's been a while, y'all. Um, well, <laughs> wait, I I wonder if someone could do just like classical music. Of course. That would be like Of course sticky. they could. Come to so, like some Beethoven. A little just, Mozart, a little Mo- Mozart, Mozart in the mix. Da, 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 yes. Yeah. 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 Let's take a time. really getting right, I'm really excited about this. That's to do it right now. If you were J-Lo and Hustlers, what song would you dance to? Tweet us using the hashtag #AMtoDM.
0: Cordell, you tweeted, Nobody. Lunch lady. Grab the fruit, baby. <laughs> Nobody wants that fruit. Come on.
1: Nobody <laughs> wants that fruit. garbage, and the food we ate in those schools is garbage. I miss Michelle Obama and her food program.
0: <laughs> yeah, I used to eat M&Ms and Diet Coke.
1: God. I, I, I ate was beef jerky up to my devices. Yeah, disgusting. Wow. How yeah. are we alive? I know. Like, are should we I alive? Should Is eat this real life? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Matt, you tweeted. He's not ignoring you. He just recently bought separate shampoo and conditioner and is trying to figure out which one goes in his hair first.
0: You know, I feel like this is uh targeting the cishet men out there. <sighs> you know, that's why they're taking they're taking a long time God. trying to figure out they're under attack. the proper hygiene. <laughs> Situation. These
1: poor men out there.
0: Really? Okay, well, Tweet of the Day. Great. Comes from Josh. I love how Gmail reminds you when someone hasn't responded to your email, like, it's been five days. You want to get passive-aggressive?
1: Why did they launch this? It does really piss me off I know, it's like supposed
0: to be helpful, but really it just makes me a little sad.
1: (laughs) I have so much anxiety about it. I'm like, oh, so Tom is ignoring me now, that's funny. And then you feel the need to remind them and blame Gmail. I do that all the time. Well, my Gmail said we should follow up with you, so per my last email and Gmail certification, get back to me.
0: Yes, yes, please, Mm. yeah.
1: Well, beyond my email, coming up, you get to see my sit down with comedian and actor, Sasha Zameda, but up next, we are going live from the district. Welcome back. Let's go live from the district, and here's a tweet from Kate Nassara. The same Senate that confirmed Kavanaugh is unlikely to remove him, said Democratic Senator Chris Coons. Democrats throw cold water on Kavanaugh impeachment calls. Joining us
0: now to talk about this story and more is BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning.
4: Good morning. Happy Tuesday.
0: Happy Tuesday. Well, Paul, do many congressional Democrats agree with Senator Chris Coons on impeaching Brett Kavanaugh?
4: Yeah, certainly. Uh, despite the new allegations and new corroboration that came out over the weekend, uh, you know, Democrats still have to live in a world of reality when you're in Congress. And the prospects of, as Senator Kuhn said, the same Senate that approved Brett Kavanaugh, Uh, to then turn around and impeach him a year or two later, uh, pretty unlikely. So that's not really where we've seen most of their energy being put.
1: Mm, And where are we seeing their energy refocus now if they don't think impeachment is the path for the situation?
4: Yeah, so instead what they're trying to do is, well, a couple things. So one is they're reopening some of the investigations into Brett Kavanaugh that were cut off as of his confirmation. And two, they are trying to... uh, basically call the FBI into account uh, for what they see as a very lacking investigation that the FBI did. So just to rewind for a moment, uh, we'll go back to the, what was it, fall of 2018. The Republicans are pushing the Kavanaugh nomination through before the midterms. Uh, Democrats are screaming that we need more time to study the documents, Republicans say, nope, we're we're calling this, we're moving forward. And then there was a one week delay, if you may recall, because of Senator Jeff Flake, who wanted an FBI investigation into some of the sexual harassment allegations into Brett Kavanaugh. A week later, Flake ended up voting for him, and he got confirmed. But there's a lot of questions about that one-week FBI investigation. They did not interview some of the key accusers. They did not interview corroborating witnesses. And in fact, the White House set the terms of that investigation. So we are now seeing Democrats now that they have... Uh, some more power, they have control of the House, trying to rip open the past, seeing what actually happened here, seeing what was left uh, unchecked, now that they're able to, because they were screaming this at the time, couldn't do anything about it, now they can.
0: Yeah, so talk a little bit more uh, about what congressional Democrats are trying to accomplish uh, by questioning the FBI investigation.
4: Yeah, and uh, I mean the director is going to be in front of the House Judiciary Committee uh, next month. I mean this was this was a major flashpoint of the Trump administration, and uh, Democrats uh, definitely want to. Ensure that this is looked at as something that was underhanded in terms of how the confirmation process went. Uh, and basically they want to find anything they can to de- delegitimize the uh, Kavanaugh nomination. And so they're going. To, I think we'll see them uh, dedicate a fair amount of resources to this over the next couple of months or longer.
1: Okay, so which congressional Democrats and even presidential candidates are still calling for impeachment if you, if everyone seems to think it's not a productive thing to do?
4: Yeah, so we're, this is where we're seeing a real divide. So in terms of people actually in Congress, we're not seeing too many of them call for impeachment. We're seeing them call for further investigations, some of the steps that are actually being taken. But... When you go to the campaign trail obviously you are playing to a different audience and we've seen people be much more likely to call for the impeachment of brad kavanaugh uh, we've had Pedro o'rourke do that already elizabeth warren kamala harris and julian castro uh, all of whom have called have said you know uh, kavanaugh needs to be impeached i mean in terms of the congress really uh, senator Mazie hirono of hawaii is probably the most prominent democrat to have got on board there, but uh, for pretty much everyone else, they're they are not going down the impeachment road.
0: Uh, so just out of curiosity, what is the process anyways to impeach a Supreme Court justice?
4: Yeah, so it would be similar to impeaching a president. It would start in the House. The House would conduct an investigation. Articles of impeachment would be drawn up. they would go to House floor vote, force Democrats control the House, Uh, Here's where things get totally untenable, is that it then goes to the Senate, and again, uh, Republicans control the Senate. Republicans just voted to uh, confirm Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, barring something absolutely wild coming out, it's pretty much unforeseeable that the Senate would ever confirm any kind of impeachment.
1: All right. Well, moving on to another topic that's just as delicious today. Here's a tweet from the New York Times. The Manhattan District Attorney subpoenaed eight years of President Trump's personal and corporate tax returns as he looks into payments to Stormy Daniels. Paul, does this mean we
4: will finally see Trump's tax returns? Absolutely not. Sorry <laughs> to the people who are uh, really out there for Trump's taxes, but uh, this is uh, probably not going to deliver what you want. Uh, of course, even if... The uh, DA's office is able to get these documents and we know that the Trump administration loves to fight to keep these things secret, but even if they get them, this will be completely sealed. The only way it would ever come out would be as evidence in some sort of trial that would not be for years from now, most likely after Trump is no longer president.
0: All right. well I appreciate you managing everyone's expectations, but what (laughs) do we know about this investigation?
4: Yeah, so what we've known so far was that this was, seemed to be at least initially, primarily about the $130,000 payment from Donald Trump to Stormy Daniels, uh, the pornographic actress who he's alleged to have had an affair with, and Michael Cohen was the intermediary to cover it up. This was before the 2016 election. The whole sordid story we've heard before. Uh, basically, it looks like the uh, Manhattan D- DA's office was uh, investigating whether this broke any kind of, well, laws. Now, I do not know why something that happened in 2016 has now extended to why they're asking for eight years of tax records. We, we basically don't know uh, how that scope of that investigation has blown up. Uh, but, you know, you can they, are, they now add themselves to the list of entities that are hoping to get a glimpse at Trump's tax returns.
1: Mm. And are we still seeing this effort in Congress to obtain his tax returns?
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've got, uh, I mean, subpoenas have been issued, but this has basically been the story of House Democrats and the White House for the past, uh, well, what has it been, you know, year, essentially, uh, that they have issued several subpoenas, Trump administration officials refuse to show up, uh, the Trump administration refuses to hand over documents, and then the Democrats go to court. So we've seen uh, just a flurry of court battles uh, kicked off, and actually Democrats have been relatively successful so far, but there's such a ways to go that we again find ourselves in the same position that even if the Democrats are successful, it will take so long to drag through the legal process that quite possibly Trump will not be president by the time they actually get their hands on anything.
0: Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Good talking with you. See you next time.
0: (laughs) See you soon. Up next, Zach is sitting down with comedian Sashir Zameda.
1: Welcome back, y'all. I'm here with stand-up comedian and star of the new movie The Weekend, Sashir Zameda. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I have to talk about your necklace really quickly. It's gonna be finicky. I feel like it's gonna be it's like this. So in head, but... good though. Thank like, you. Like I love like a little gold bangle. <laughs> yeah, I like you have that. On your neck. I have it on my arm. They're fun. So it's great. It looks yeah. good on you too. Thank you very much. It's good. So let's get into uh, your new film. So yeah. you play a stand-up comedian with a complicated friendship uh, in the new film The Weekend. How did you get involved in this film, and what made you realize that this role was so perfect for you
5: well i skyped with stella maggie who's the writer director and she just seemed so cool and really knew what she wanted with the story and i like a romantic comedy that's not in a perfect package Mm -hmm. like i like watching a character who isn't perfect either and so i think that's what drew me to this role of zadie Mm because she uh can be abrasive Mm -hmm. she can be uh, a little maddening, and I feel like as the audience member, there are gonna be moments where you're gonna be mad mm-hmm. at me and I like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I also want you to root for this person mm-hmm. too. so I, I just like being able to see a full range of emotion and a full range
1: of a human mm-hmm. being as yeah. opposed to like just some pretty, yeah. perfect person on screen. And why did you want to see that specifically for a rom-com? Which I think shows very flat characters sometimes. Yeah. That you just root for and you're like, girl, please get that man so I can get a man too. Right, right, right. And
5: sometimes that's fun. Yeah. Sometimes I want to see that. But I guess um, it's nice to see that anyone can have love. Mm-hmm. Not just... Someone who's like got a great job or is doing everything correctly. I just, it's nice to see that like you can make mistakes, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you don't deserve love as much as
1: anybody else. Yeah, and I think your character in this film is like very much fighting for love while also being, you know, an anti-hero as you describe, yeah. and someone that just speaks her mind constantly. Are there any moments you were tapping into in your past where you were too outspoken um, that that you really used to draw on this character? Do
4: mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to? <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> Yes. Okay. <laughs> <You're> like yes.
5: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been asked that before, and people, you know, I think people think I'm very sweet, mm-hmm. and I am sweet. Uh, but I do have love sarcastic thoughts mm-hmm. in my head, and I used to be more blunt. Like I feel like my New Year's resolution for years was like just be nicer, mm-hmm. and now I feel like I'm better at that. I feel like the difference between me and Zadie is that I have tact, mm-hmm. and Zadie is very like no filter. She lets you know how how she feels all the time, and. Sometimes that's not necessary. and That's mm-hmm. something I had to learn
1: over time. <laughs> Was it tough to learn?
5: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> that's a struggle. It's a struggle. Some people don't deserve to be nice to you. You are so right. Like, I'm sorry.
5: You yeah. don't have to be nice to everyone. Yeah, but, you know, like, I want. To, I also want to work, so I got to. Ooh,
1: that's cheap. <laughs> it's expensive to live. Right.
5: Yeah, but I can't, I can't afford to just, like, let everyone know yeah. how I feel. Sometimes I got to. Suck it up and get that check, you know?
1: Yes, and bite your tongue a bit. (laughs) Uh Oh, I love that girl. I understand that one today. Well, you know, this film has an all-black cast. And, you know, we're seeing this evolution of a lot of films in mainstream with all-black casts like yours. Yeah. Um, And they are considered black movies, but they are still really relatable to everyone. What do you think about this term black film in current-day America as we're seeing this kind of renaissance?
5: Well, I hope the term black film can mean more things. Mm -hmm. It is a black film. There's black people in it. Um, I think maybe there used to be a connotation of like oh a black film is like this kind of comedy or this kind of genre and that we're going to get these kinds of tropes and these characters but ideally i would like a black film to be anything yeah any anything created by black people starring black people what produced by black people whatever the thing is like yeah sure it's a black film but i think anyone can relate to it Mm because really what we're just talking about is a love story Mm -hmm. and that applies to everybody. Yeah
1: and what do you think that does for America or viewers when they're seeing that when they're able to relate to folks that look like us?
5: Oh man I mean when you're able to see yourself in people who aren't Mm -hmm. you or don't look like you I think it develops empathy you're able to understand people and their situations more and Yeah, I think it just brings us closer together as a community. Mm, I love that. I love that.
1: I hope it does.
5: (laughs) I mean, I don't know if this movie... I mean, this movie's very fun. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want that weight put on the movie. But, uh, yeah, I think all art is a way to bring people together and hopefully get you to learn more about Mm -hmm. people you don't know.
1: Mm, I love that. So, you know, comedy is a part of art and it does help people connect with each other. And we've been having a lot of comedians on lately, like Marlon Wayans and Michelle Buteau. and we've been having a lot of conversations on cancel culture. And, you know, Shane Gillis was fired yesterday and he's now become part of this cancel culture. What are your thoughts on that as a comedian on cancel culture and how you all are navigating that today?
5: Hmm, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of opinions on cancel culture. I do think... There are some things that maybe need to be uh, checked upon, mm-hmm. but I also understand some comedians' like plight of like, oh, we should be able to say what we want, which I totally agree. Yeah. But also, your audience is allowed to react however they want. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so you have, say whatever you want, but you also have to like, know that the audience is going to feel how they feel, and they mm-hmm. also have a right to say what they want to say. So, I don't know. Yeah. I, I <laughs> I don't, thankfully, I haven't had any problems like that because I just talk about my personal experiences. And if you can jive with mm-hmm. it, you can jive with it. If you can't, then you can't. But uh, I just like doing things that make me feel good and hopefully. People respond well to that.
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because, you know, you're seeing a lot of men complain about this, Uh but not women. And I'm like, why is this happening? Why is it that men are so frightened and scared and then so opinionated when something does get canceled? But I feel like women comedians are not allowed to have that space to talk about it as much.
5: Interesting, I haven't even thought about that. I don't know. Um, I think because we're just, (laughs) we're working. (laughs) we're just like, we're just busy working and like doing our job. So I don't know if there are a ton of women who are like, this is the hill I need to die on. For sure. We have a lot of other fights to be yeah. fighting, so.
1: I mean, you had to fight just to get equal pay, getting yeah. access to jobs, all the stuff. So you're Stage like. Stage
5: time, yeah. screen time. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't know.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. So on a lighter note, before we go, I love your friendship with Nicole Byer. Thanks. Y'all have a podcast, you're good girlfriends. Tell me about this recent vacation y'all were on.
5: Oh, yeah. I went <laughs> to Hawaii and it was so we fun. We have pictures. <laughs> oh Yeah, I was at a luau and I bought that outfit that day. Oh cute. shopping. Um, We went, yeah, that was my ATV right? You are really going through my Instagram. uh,
1: (laughs) A producer was having too much fun. (laughs) Uh,
5: We did have a, it started off kind of rocky because we had a huge cockroach in our bathroom. That's
1: disgusting.
5: I don't know. It was like, it was the biggest I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And uh, we called the front desk. We were like, help, please. We're women. We don't know how to do this. (laughs) And then they just said like, just some old small man who was like, "Where is it?" And he just like got a tissue, and just like grabbed it with his hand. and was like, "Okay, I got it." And I was like, "Okay, great, thanks." But apparently, that's a common thing in Hawaii. I didn't know cockroaches are. Yes, I don't think and no about that. No one says anything. That's like, a we're mess. Like telling everyone we're going to Hawaii, and no one's like you should look out for the cockroaches. But once we got there, everyone's like, that's that's Hawaii.
1: That's I think of that as New York, not Hawaii. Hawaii, that's I want cockroach lists, I want a fine man. I want like access to beaches. <laughs> yeah. Not a cockroach. I could have stayed here. Right? That's a mess. No. Well, well, thank you for sharing all those photos. It was really lovely to yeah, watch. Thanks. We lost friendship. And it's great to see that, you know, best friends can kiki and also be successful together and support each other.
5: Oh, yeah. I love her so much. We've been friends for like 10 years and also working in the same industry. It's just nice to have somebody who gets it?
1: Yeah, and I'm sure it's hard to find those people that also get that. Yeah, so I'm glad that you have that. Well, yeah. thank you so much for being here. Thank This you. has been lovely getting to know you and hearing about cockroaches <laughs> and your takes on cockroaches. <laughs> That's what I, I, why I wanted. To that was the big just, like, version. That was what we you on came Hawaiian to Hawaiian cockroaches. <laughs> well, thank you <laughs> for that. Uh, you can catch the weekend in theaters now. Up next, Alex is speaking with Oscar-winning filmmaker Brian Grazer about his new book Face to Face. Stay tuned.
0: I'm joined by Oscar-winning producer Brian Grazer. He's the co-founder of Imagine Entertainment with Ron Howard. You know his movies like Splash, A Beautiful Mind, and shows like Arrested Development. And he has a new book out called Face to Face, The Art of Human Connection. Welcome.
6: Well, yeah, hey, thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, thrilled to get to talk to you. And one of the things I was so struck by um, is that, you know, now with such a, a successful career, it's really hard to imagine that you ever struggled in a pitch meeting. (laughs) So I wanna know what were some of the challenges that you faced early on, and what was the big thing you learned about human connection that changed everything for you?
6: Um, Okay. Okay, yes, I've struggled a lot. <laughs> um, you know, I still, people say no to me. I mean, but no, and, and but when I started my career making the Mermaid movie Splash, starring Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah and John Candy, it was years of no, uh, just walls of no. And the people that were saying no to me, they weren't happy just saying no. They had to accompany it with a little humiliation at the same time, like, what a stupid idea. But I didn't even ask about the idea, I just want you to make it. So, um, but I, 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 came to, I came to conclude a couple things. One is, no isn't really personal. Um, they said no to Steven Spielberg on ET. They turned. They said no to that. But more importantly, I still to this day, no is just a temporary point of view. Hmm. And I always change the temporary point of view
4: hmm.
6: to yes. Yeah, yeah,
0: what were some of the other things that you learned about human connection that you felt like helped you when you would go into some of these meetings and, and really throughout the duration of your career?
6: Well, a lot of it, it's a lot of those techniques, the details, those micro details live in this book here, Face to Face, Art of Human Connection. <laughs> and but, uh, primarily, the story, when you meet somebody, look, in order for anyone to say yes to you in terms of giving money, I know this only too well because I've produced a hundred movies and I had to make people say yes on those hundred movies and, and believe in my mission or the mission of the movie often when it's not even written. And like in the case of say Denzel Washington, an American gangster, he had to believe in me and the mission and what it was when it didn't really fully exist and pass up other jobs. And he, He's in the most the most demand actor demanded actor in the world, and you know it takes a lot to make that happen. And the way you do it is by human connection, by relating to somebody and ha- allowing them to feel your heart and not just your mind and yeah. your talking mouth, but feel your heart and your spirit. And if you can feel somebody's heart, you can reach them and ca- you can really connect.
4: Mm-hmm.
6: And i I always kind of try to. I always believe that. You make your heart available based on intentionality too. Mm -hmm. You you have to have good intentions, Mm -hmm. you know. And and if you feel that somebody, you're trying to convince somebody of something that they're not going to win as well, I think that's not a good mission. Mm -hmm. You try to go for win. You you try to pitch win wins. Mm -hmm. But basically, by being present, putting your phone away. I mean, I get up at 5 o'clock, and I look at my phone, I look at my iPad, I go to YouTube, I do all that for almost two hours. And then when I experience the day, I experience it in present time. So when I see you right now, I, like, I see every bit of you. <laughs> and I was struck by you, actually, when I walked in. And so we have a chance to like be vulnerable with each other. We have a chance to like gain like insights that we can transport to something else or or just live in your mind and expand your system of curation, like mm-hmm. better ideas. You know, I met your founder, Jonah Peretti, mm-hmm. I think even in this building because I had a curiosity conversation because mm-hmm. I was so blown away by the phenom of your mm-hmm. culture and BuzzFeed itself. So I, I just, I love, I, I, what I tripped on him is like he blew it up really fast, more like his bravery. Mm-hmm. I was very... Excited by his courage because he seemed fearless, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I and I don't to go into great detail. I want you to get this book. <laughs> <laughs> Please go you go go on with
0: Got the, all the secrets ahead.
6: of, <laughs> um, well, of how is, to get yeses out of people. One of the words
0: you just mentioned is vulnerability? And in thinking about your own story, um, something that you coped with was uh, growing up with dyslexia. Yeah. How did that come to inform the way you connect with people later in your life?
6: Okay, that was it. Was central. It was. Um, Quite humiliating at the time, but I had acu- a, a very acute uh, dyslexia. I, I couldn't read a word until I was, I don't know, it's, it's fifth grade. <laughs> mm. So I couldn't read a word. I couldn't comprehend the sequencing of sentences, and so as a, as, as the byproduct of that was. I was constantly creating ways to not look at people in the eyes because mm. if I looked them in the eye, particularly a teacher, they would call on me and I would not know the answer. Once I was able to sort of crawl into the vocabulary of being able to read or into the world of being able to read, then I thought, wow, I can actually look at people because I, 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 I was avoided the shame and I found a way to lend, a, a, use all of the resources that I had in my earlier part of life and meld them together with Eye contact mm-hmm. and being present and starting my story with that person as I walk in the door, because it's isn't it uncool? Like when people are gonna you're gonna meet somebody and they're still on their phone or they got their you know earpod in, and or you're in a restaurant and it just makes them. A, well, you want to feel like not, someone's paying attention to yeah. you. someone's
0: there with you. Yeah, yeah they're
6: not validating you. you as a human being, and I think it's kind of an insecure move, by the way, to do that. It, I, I think. I think it's misdirected. But anyway, so because of all of that, the dyslexia, I became hypersensitized to being present and looking at people, reading their body language and their cues, and ultimately just feeling their energy Hmm. and seeing how how that actually Mm -hmm. is feeling for you.
0: Well, it's interesting because, I mean, I think we're getting at this uh, conversation about technology a little bit. And, you know, uh, technology hasn't just changed in terms of the kinds of devices that we use, but also now with the advent of streaming platforms, um, that's also changed uh, Hollywood and in the industry a lot. It has. How do you think uh, technology has uh, both helped and also impeded our ability to connect?
6: Well, technology has helped in that um, it's enabled us through technology in a, di- a digital form to reach lots of people all over the world and read about cultures, it isn't fully demystifying, quite frankly, but you do get to learn a lot. And I, I kind of love that. I love being able to learn a lot. I do really like looking at videos. <laughs> I do, they're the shortcut to yeah, understand something. Yeah. So, because, you know, video imagery is, is very pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. So um, I do like all of that stuff. Um, I do, even I, and I love the advancement of technology and how it's sort of found its way into storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, on the flip side, there's an oversaturation. There's so many stories that you mm-hmm. can find. And, you, and so the trick now is to have subjects that really are hooky or matter. So you're starting mm-hmm. at a head start. And more importantly, um, you're on a platform that pays some money to promote your product. Mm-hmm. So that way it's differentiated from the thousands of other things that are out there. Mm. So promoting stuff matters.
0: Well, technology isn't one of the only ways that Hollywood has rapidly changed in the past couple of years. As I was reading um, your story and and just thinking about your career over decades, I was also thinking and wondering about the ways that Hollywood has changed. And one of the things Mm -hmm. I was thinking about was some of the uh, challenges that the Me Too movement has wrought in Hollywood, especially over gender inequities over the past couple of years. And I was wondering what you make of the changes that the movement is bringing. Um,
6: You know, what else needs to change? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, the Me Too movement... um, you know, there's so many ways to like think of it. Mm-hmm. I I really appreciated it because it's a it's it, it was a it's a lightning rod. It's a, it gets your attention mm-hmm. to the fact that there are human inequities and it's a human rights violation, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And I'm a proponent of equality. Yeah. yeah. And and I, I you know, quite frankly, for 25 years I've had two-thirds of all of my employees have been women, and it was always women consistently over the 25 years that ran each division. Mm -hmm. And I found this thing that's very ironic, because women are accused of, like, getting hysterical. Indeed, yeah. Men get more hysterical (laughs) than women. They do. And then they really lose track of the subject. And I found that that was factual, um, and I saw it happen in real time. I had this big movie. It was called The Grinch That Stole Christmas. And we picked a date that it should be released. Another studio came out and landed on our date. The chairman of our studio at the time went crazy, you know, like how dare they and FFFF, you know, like, and I said, well, maybe another date is better. Let's consider that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not all just about like igniting all the testosterone you could possibly ignite to fight somebody. Like, think about it. Maybe it's a virtue to move the date. Maybe not. Mm -hmm. But, like, let's examine it without going insane. Mm -hmm. And women have a calmer mind um, in a creative medium, I found.
0: Mm, That's interesting. Well, listen, I could certainly spend far more time talking to you. And I really wanted to know about some of your upcoming projects, like this Lin-Manuel Miranda Tick, Tick, Boom adaptation. Oh, that's going to be amazing. Yeah, I was so excited. But we have to leave it there. So thank you so much for joining me.
6: Okay, you're very welcome. <laughs> I miss you already. <laughs> well, face
0: to face, the art of human connection is available now. <laughs> Up next, more AM to DM. Thank you so much. It was so. Fascinating.
1: Here's a tweet from Ashley Spencer. Unbelievable drops on Netflix this week and I can't stop thinking about what a masterpiece it is. And I'm here today with actor Danielle McDonald, one of the stars of Unbelievable, to talk about the Netflix limited run series. How are you today? I'm
7: good, how are you?
1: It's it's great to be here with you. You yeah. know, we were, ta- we were talking about this, but you know, I love the show so much, um, but it's such a hard show to get through. Um, so I don't want to be too happy to see you, but you know that there's a lot of joy
7: here. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. It's,
1: it's an interesting mix. Yes, yeah. it for sure is. So, you know, Unbelievable is the story of two detectives um, following a serial rapist and his crimes. What were your first thoughts when you read that script? It seems incredibly heavy to hand over to someone.
7: Yeah, it was. Um, I actually, I got sent the pilot script and the um, the ProPublica article. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm saying that wrong, aren't I? Um, you said it right, <laughs> yeah, girl. It right, You're good.
1: ProPublica. Uh, yeah.
7: ProPublica article. And then I also got sent the podcast, this American Life oh. podcast. So I, I got to kind of get the full story from the article. And then I got to hear kind of the own personal account on the podcast. And then I also got to read the pilot script, which is just part of the story because mm-hmm. um, there are kind of two parallel Mm storylines throughout and it is incredibly heavy but Mm -hmm. at the same time such an important story um it continues a conversation that people are finally talking about i think Mm -hmm. it's needed and i just wanted to be a part of that especially after talking to the producers and they really wanted to tell the story the right way it was never going to be gratuitous it was never Mm going to milk the story for it was just it was giving the facts and that Mm. was so important and
1: that is very important but let's take a quick look at it real quick because we have something here
7: one more thing. Um, about him, about the guy. What's that? Um, he told me this was his first rape, but I don't think that's true. I think he's done this before.
1: So as folks can see, your character is a survivor of sexual violence. How did you get into the mindset of playing such a tough role and tough scenes there?
7: Uh, it's really not easy. Um, I, I had kind of limited information Mm -hmm. and basically what I had to go on was she was seemingly fine. Mm -hmm. And that kind of sounds, um, a lot of people don't understand that I guess is the best way to put it. And I at first was like, okay, how do I get into this headspace when someone is seemingly fine after going through this? And so I did a lot of research into the trauma that, um, people go through Mm -hmm. and, every case is so different. That has honestly been the main takeaway for me is just understanding how differently everyone reacts to trauma Mm -hmm. and there is no one right way to react and no one should be judged for how they react Mm -hmm. because we all process things differently. And that was honestly um, the most eye-opening thing for me and that helped me find the character. Um, That helped me understand everything that was going on underneath and then having to be okay, having Mm -hmm. to get through.
1: I kept thinking about you as an actress and I'd love to know no, how did you decompress after that? Because even though you're acting fine, I'm sure it wasn't fine.
7: Yeah, no, it's because it's there's this whole other wall going on underneath mm-hmm. um, and you can't be fine without everything else underneath. And so there is this anxiety and um, oh, there's a lot going yeah, on underneath. Yeah. And so it, it stays with you. And mm-hmm. a story like this, it's hard to leave it behind when mm-hmm. you leave set. Um, I would have like a week off and then I would come back to set and it's like, I couldn't exactly leave it behind yeah. and I was shooting in LA so I was also at home so it felt
5: mm-hmm. it too was close back.
7: yeah it just kept coming with me and it's hard but you also remember people actually experience this mm-hmm. this is a true story this is what someone went through mm-hmm. and I I am just telling that so you can't focus too much on like yeah. yourself it's like someone actually experiences yeah.
1: um would you say that that kind of nugget that you just pointed to is what got you through this yeah. because that's what you're wanting the audience to take away from Yeah
7: that? it really it really is kind of what got me through it's 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 about someone else and you keep that in your mind and that gets you through and and then on top of that I have good friends and I have animals that I go home and cuddle mm-hmm. and you have to find a way to yeah to stay in your life also
1: girls. being able to do that. So yeah. important. Well, you know, beyond this, this project, which is really important, you've done a bunch of other things. You did Bird Box and Dumplin', which both are great films, but Dumplin' Girl, which we spoke about, <laughs> is, is my thing, because Dolly Parton. So, you know, you now have <laughs> is three major projects with Netflix. Do you feel yeah. like they are helping you really step into these huge opportunities as a platform?
7: Yeah, it's been kind of amazing. Um, you know, it, it's funny because... Dumplin' was actually an an indie movie that then got Mm -hmm. bought by Netflix, which was really cool because that was my first experience with them. And then uh, Bird Box was through and through them. So it was like, Mm -hmm. and they came out a week apart. So that was one of those (laughs) weird things where I was like, what is Mm -hmm. happening? Like my life kind of changed overnight a little Mm -hmm. bit because it has such a wide reach. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't really think about that. But yeah, Netflix really has a platform that does get seen internationally mm-hmm. and that's really cool because it means your stories just go further. Mm-hmm. I think a story like this is so important. I'm glad that it gets to be seen internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Netflix has been really amazing to work with. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've enjoyed every experience I've had with them.
1: And something that I've noticed with Netflix is that they're investing a lot in romantic comedies and I don't know if yeah. I'd say Dumplin' w- is a romantic comedy specifically.
7: Yeah, it's like, it like touches upon that. I feel yeah. like when I was filming Dumplin' I always said we had like three different movies. Uh-huh. I had like my movie with Luke, my like little rom-com with Luke um, who plays Mm Bo and then I had you know my mother-daughter drama with Jen Mm -hmm. and then I had like my like girl squad Mm -hmm. friend group (laughs) and with the girls and it felt so funny because it felt we shot them all so separately yeah it was like wow. We're putting I mean, three them all together. Movies, and then it all combined. So I can't tell you what the yeah. genre is. But I just... can't
1: either, and I loved it. But let's but let's but let's focus on one of the genres, romantic comedy. If yeah. you were able to be cast in a romantic comedy that you were starring in, mm-hmm. who would you want to be your love interest? <laughs> oh God.
7: <laughs> oh, I don't know. That's a really hard one.
1: Who, I, you can name a few if you need.
7: Okay, um, I'm trying to think. This 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 might be a little weird now, but like my 13 year old self mm-hmm. would have said Patrick Dempsey because I was in love with McDreamy from Grey's Anatomy. Of course, of course, obviously. of course. Yeah. Um, now, now, yes. now. Oh my God. I don't know. It's weird because like, I feel like I've met so many people. It'd be so uh, You don't want to out
1: yourself. Okay. To I'll, out out let you, I'll let you get away with that. <laughs> okay, what about cool. Noah Centineo? You know, he's a fellow Netflix person.
7: You know, what? I actually haven't met him. So maybe
1: that's a safe pick
7: maybe that's a safe pick or maybe I'll just go with Luke because I've already done it like with him once for a Uh dumpling like come on let's have round two I I love that yeah more more Willa Dean and Burr yes
1: very much that but uh, (laughs) oh my gosh I'm in that right now campaign for it yes Twitter do your thing Um, so before you go I have to talk to you about all your co-stars in the past you know Sandra Bullock Mm -hmm. Jennifer Aniston Tony Collette Um, what is the biggest thing you've been learning by working with these titans of actresses
7: Um, honestly I think the biggest thing I've noticed that they all have in common is that they're so hardworking. Mm-hmm. It's it's not like, oh, we worked hard and then we became famous yeah. and now we just still are. It's like, nope. They are constantly hardworking, confident, um, verbal people. You know, they're 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 not shy and they're always very uh, polite and friendly with mm-hmm. it. It's like They're just they're good people. They're good people that respect other people, Mm -hmm. and they're also hardworking. It's like that's just an amazing combination. They're
1: powerhouses for a reason. That's incredible. I love to know that my my secret mom Sandra Bullock is a nice person. Oh my god, the cool, the coolest, and she's also like the coolest mom. Thank you. She's the coolest.
7: My fantasies have told me this. I was like, oh, she's so cool. (laughs) She was like, she'd be on set, she'd be you know leading a Mm -hmm. huge movie while also like her kids were there, and I was like, you're
1: just you're you're
7: unbelievable. She's incredible. your yeah, superhuman. Well,
1: you two are goals for me too because I love your work and thank you so much for being here <laughs> thank today. Thank you for It's been wonderful me. getting to know you more. And <laughs> Unbelievable is now streaming on Netflix. More HDM is up next. Welcome back. It's time for Us and I want to bring up this treat from James Hamblin. He writes, cancel culture, social justice warriors, Twitter mafia, outrage mobs, PC culture, hysteria, and tomorrow there will be a new term to broadly delegitimize the basic act of people speaking up rather than engaging with actual cases and arguments.
0: Yeah, I want like a Venn diagram of the people who scream about PC culture ruining their free speech and then also scream about, uh, you know, like people expressing that people shouldn't be able mm-hmm. to say race, racist stuff because yeah. I'm like, oh, you only want your free speech. That's actually what actually what Overlaps this is, heavily. And I this think that, is yes, totally exactly.
1: And there's this next tweet that we have yeah, here. Yeah, yeah,
0: this is from Man in the Hoodie. Right now, white men are canceling everyone else's right to vote with gerrymandering and voter suppression, canceling women's access to abortion, canceling LGBTQ people's right to exist as themselves, and then whining about cancel culture because they can't tell racist <laughs> jokes.
1: <laughs> so that's that Venn diagram you're we yeah, talking that, about. Thank you. Yes, yeah, that's exactly that's, it. Yeah. And the reason why we're bringing this up is because Sashir brought this up in our conversation today. You know, today we're talking a lot about Mr. Giles, who was fired from SNL. And when asked, you know, why is it that men always complain about this but women, she was right. She said, you know, women are just too busy trying to get work, trying to get time on stage, trying to be out here, dealing with misogyny. And I was like, oh, that's an aha moment for me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is why these men, because they have privilege and they're able to do this. And I think what we're seeing, we're talking about people complaining about cancel culture, is they're saying, I want to keep my privilege.
0: Yeah. I mean, who amongst us would uh, think of doing something like Shane Gillis and then not even apologizing Mm -hmm. afterwards, like giving a, well, if you're offended, I can apologize to you. The the lack of contrition just spoke to everything to not even want to maintain and and keep your SNL job badly enough to issue a Mm -hmm. sincere apology
1: and disavow the horrible things he said. Okay, it's insane, and what so she said, she said, you know, I'm not worried about this because I have been living my life, and that is the big note for everyone today. If you find yourself worried about getting canceled, worried about being exposed, that says more about what you have done and you have not resolved than what actually the culture is. People are just telling you to stand in your truth, and if your truth is that you're violently racist, homophobic, anti, all these things, then you know that chicken's going to come to roost. I'm sorry, yeah. and you can't take that back. And I'm sorry, your dream may be floating in front of you, but the dream will disappear yeah. if exposed. And that's not new exposure; it's just telling the truth. Yeah, and we love that.
0: I, I can just I just thinking about Shane Gillis is making my temperature <laughs> rise again. And I was just so lovely yeah. watching you sit down. It was sure. yeah.
1: So that was my little diatribe for today. <laughs> Thank you, Sashir, for inspiring me. And also a quick correction: her film is not in theaters right now; it's streaming now on demand. So find that on your cable it's a cable Netflix who, and all, you, all, all the streaming things. platforms you like to use gosh yeah. well thank you to our guests today Marina Fang Brittany Shepard Paul McLeod Brian Fraser Danielle McDonald and Sashir Maita
0: we'll be back here tomorrow at 10am with more AM to DM of course so have a great rest of your day Boop.